Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Kyle, if you want to go up two slides, just for a sec. So I'm not going to preach on this verse, but it's one of my favorite verses, so I do need to feel the need to say it out loud. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? So next time church runs long, or you're in a board meeting, or that email is just way too long, you can just shoot this one back. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? And like I said a couple weeks ago, if you're an introvert, Ecclesiastes, like, enjoy it, man. It's uh, Stop talking. You know, that's uh, one of the things it says, which is a great introduction to a sermon, of course. Um, all right. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we dive into this passage, these words would not be dead words on a page, but alive words in our heart, that they would shape us and stir in us and make us more like Jesus. That we could savor them and savor the things that you have given us. That we would know you don't want us to be miserable, but to enjoy the things that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So when I was 21, I had the awesome experience of studying abroad. I got to spend four months in Dublin, Ireland. And there you go. There I am. There's 21-year-old me. Looking good. I got to travel around for a couple different months, uh, or for a couple months and see different countries, and it was fun, and it was meaningful, and it was a really shaping experience. But one of my memories from that semester was going to Switzerland. Um, I got the opportunity to take a long weekend and go to Switzerland and go skiing, meet up with some friends who were also studying abroad in, in uh, Europe that semester. So um, you can see it was this gorgeous trip, right? I flew into Zurich and took the train and had to sleep in the train station and went through these beautiful mountains and these little villages. You can go to the next one there. And we stayed in this little town called the Zermatt, which is right at the base of the Matterhorn there. And I got to sleep in that morning and we went out skiing that afternoon. And I was in one of the most scenic places I've ever been, surrounded by friends I loved, looking out over this gorgeous mountain valley, right? Like amazing friends and beautiful place. And I remember having this thought, wow, I'm unhappy. You ever had that experience? Here was like every circumstance was perfect, right? And when I looked at my heart, I said, wow, I'm so unhappy right now. Now, I'm pleased to say that funk didn't last and I had a good trip to Switzerland and all was well. But I think it was the first time in my life that I realized that every circumstance could be perfect and I could still be really, really unhappy. Has anyone else experienced this, or is this just me? Yeah, 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 I'm not alone in that? Okay, cool. Good, because that's what Ecclesiastes 6 is about. If you've been going along, of course, with Ecclesiastes, we traveled through all these different uh, aspects of meaninglessness, and today we get to look at stuff. Um, And today we get to look at a new tragedy in the words of the teacher. He says in verses 1 and 2, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. 
God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And our author looks at this from two angles. The first is you can spend your whole life building a fortune just to have it taken away, right? I mean, you can get terminal cancer or get scammed or have barbarians roll into your town and take it all away. And on some level, so the author is saying, like, you better enjoy the ride, right? Like, don't just put off your happiness to this day where you arrive, because you might arrive and lose everything. So make sure you enjoy the way. We've kind of already talked about that a little bit. But he speaks to this second tragedy, too, which I've kind of alluded to. It's the tragedy of having all the good things in the world and simply being unable to enjoy them. Of sitting on that perfect ski slope with good friends overlooking a Swiss village and somehow still being unhappy. The teacher says this in verses 3 to 6. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. That's bleak, man. Right? Our author says it's better to be a stillborn child than to have good things and not be able to enjoy them. So again, I'm pretty sure this is universal experience, right? You see this in the Psalms. The psalmist famously says, why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, come on, man. Why are you such a downer? There's this quote by Nathaniel Hawthorne that says this. Happiness is a butterfly, which when pursued is always just beyond your grasp, but which, if you sit down quietly, may alight upon you. Does that feel right to you? Like happiness is this like fleeting, elusive thing that is here today and gone tomorrow. It comes and it goes and there's not much you can do to control it except to hope that it falls on you again. Have you had that experience? So I want to introduce you to an author I came across recently. We were on vacation and we were driving home and we listened to a podcast uh, on the podcast Hidden Brain. His name is Fred Bryant. He is a psychologist from uh, Loyola University in Chicago. And he wrote a book over here called Savoring. And if you want to know your good news for the morning, it's this. Hawthorne didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) Fred Bryant. (laughs) Bryant claims through his research that you can learn to be happy. That you can learn how to enjoy things. That this isn't an inherent skill you either have or you don't have. That happiness is not this fleeting experience that kind of comes and goes. And if you're lucky enough to sit still long enough, it'll sit on you. You can actually practice. You can actually take on strategies. There are actually things you can do to learn to enjoy. Enjoyment is not the fleeting butterfly you will never pin down. 
Instead, Brian says this, kind of continuing with the, the metaphor of the butterfly. You don't have to sit passively and wait for the butterfly to alight on you. You can go to where the butf- butterflies are. You can smear honey on yourself, which might attract them. You can sit amongst the flowers where they come. You can read about them and learn the time of day where you can most easily encounter them. The idea is that if you know what you're doing, this is a skill. Referring back to the quote, he says, it's like saying that you will never be able to play the violin. If you're lucky, you might draw the bow across the strings. You might make a sound, but that's the best you can hope for. Come on. You can get lessons. You can practice it. You can learn from great musicians. So the bad news is, most of us have not been taught any of this. As Brian admits, the overwhelming emphasis in modern psychology has been on problem solving. The idea that you have these problems, and if we solve these problems, you'll be happy. But he says his research overwhelmingly shows that's not true. That the lack of problems is not the same thing as enjoyment. Right? I think we all kind of know that, right? Like, being sick is a problem. But just because you're healthy doesn't mean you're happy. Being debt and debt is a problem, but not having debt doesn't inherently make you happy. And like he says, again, this is not just something you stumble upon, but something we actually need to learn. Just as we need to learn to deal with pain to be healthy human beings, we actually have to learn how to enjoy things. So this is good news, right? It means that if you're like me and have been on that mountain in Switzerland and been unhappy, it doesn't mean you're doomed, right? You're not actually doomed by the experience of not being able to enjoy the good things in front of you. If happiness feels like a fleeting butterfly, you can learn to catch butterflies. And if you're constantly yelling at your soul for being so down, you can actually teach your soul to be up. So again, that's our good news for this morning. It takes work to enjoy your life, but it's work that can be done. That's pretty cool, right? That's actually incredibly empowering. You can actually learn to enjoy your life. Now, of course, many of us have been taught that to be properly religious, we're not supposed to enjoy the things of this world, right? That that's like, that's a little too worldly and we should feel bad about it and you should probably go home and repent because you actually enjoyed something. But Ecclesiastes doesn't teach this, right? It says the exact opposite, that it's one of the greatest tragedies in the world to have good stuff and not enjoy it. It doesn't mean, it doesn't honor God to be miserable. Do we know that? God created this world and he created it for us to be good and he created us good. And as one of my heroes, Father Greg Boyle likes to say, God created us because he thought we'd enjoy it. So the million dollar question is, how do we learn to enjoy our life? And I'm going to do my best to summarize what I've learned from Fred Bryant here in the next 12 minutes. 
course, if you want to learn more, I can give you the link for that podcast or you can buy the book and you can dive much more into this. But hopefully you can take one or two things from here that will actually help. So um, four different strategies that he talks about in his, uh, in his work. First one, I'm going to start with the counterintuitive one, fasting. There is in psychology something called the hedonic treadmill. It's the simple idea that the more you have of something, the less you enjoy it. And it's not just like moral advice, right? Our bodies are actually designed for this. We're designed to get used to our settings, and it's one of the things that helps us endure endure through really uncomfortable situations, right? We can get used to pain. We can get used to discomfort in the same way we get used to having good things. In fact, you can even like measure this. If you make a really big ball of ice cream, you will enjoy it less by the end of the bowl of ice cream. That's how quickly your body gets used to positive things. So ironically, one of the practices most correlated to enjoyment is fasting. So if you want to enjoy watching TV, have days or weeks or seasons where the TV is off. If you want to enjoy your food, have days or weeks or seasons where you either eat less or actually just change your diet. Like seriously, try like being vegetarian for a season and then see how meat tastes. If you want to enjoy travel or adventures, also have a steady job. If you want to enjoy good friends, schedule some time to be alone. Apparently this even works on a micro level. If you're enjoying a great party, you can actually reset your sensors by just going outside for five minutes and coming back in. Or you can walk away from a great dessert and come back two minutes later and it will actually reset. This is of course not a discovery of modern psychology. Fasting has been a part of religion since the beginning of religion and it's not surprising we see this balance in Jesus, right? Jesus spends long amounts of time alone and yet is filled with great love for others. Jesus fasts in the wilderness and also turns water into wine. and Apparently it's really good wine. Jesus chooses a life of poverty and wandering and yet lobs his friend for getting out the expensive perfume. Jesus is someone who fasts. Jesus is someone who favors, who savors. They both go hand in hand. So do we have times and seasons to turn things off? Maybe it doesn't have to be the full six weeks of Lent. Maybe it's Tuesday nights. What can you do to reset that treadmill so that you can actually enjoy the good things in your life? All right, so that's number one. Fasting. Number two, way too complicated term, downward hedonic assessment, which basically means compared down, not up. Things could always be better, right? They always could. Even if you have a million dollars, you could have two million dollars. Even if you have a million fans, you could have two million fans. Comparing up is a guaranteed way to be unhappy. And comparing down is not necessarily about saying, boy, I'm glad I'm not like him, right? But on some level, it's realizing that all things are fleeting. 
So Brian talks about this. Of just looking at the experiences in your life. Thank God I can go out for a run this afternoon, right? Remember when I had that injury last year and couldn't run? And there will be a day when my legs won't work anymore. So thank God I can go out running. Thank God I get to cook this meal for my family today. Remember last month when we were too busy to be able to even sit down and eat? And one day the kids will be gone and my hands won't work anymore. Thank God I get to cook this meal. I've noticed in myself this big change, even if I can change my phraseology from I have to to I get to. I have to take Augie to baseball. I get to take Augie to baseball. I know there's limits to that. But man, just switching that basic phraseology can actually do a lot to like, wow, what a privilege that I have a job, that I get to work, that I get to serve with people, that I get to meet someone today. And part of this, of course, is noticing when things aren't bad, right? It's so easy to complain when travel plans go sideways. We had a great flight on Tuesday coming back from Nebraska. Nothing went wrong and we arrived on time. Thank you, Lord. It's so easy to complain when we are sick and not notice when our body works. And again, this isn't our fault. Our bodies are wired to attend to threats, right? Like, it's good that that's the way it is. Like, if there's a tiger, like, you need to respond. And you don't necessarily need to have an immediate response to things being okay. But as such, we often don't notice them. So this is a skill we have to learn, to notice when things are just good, when things are okay, when things are steady. So take a second to think on that. What's one thing in your life that's just going well? It's just kind of humming along as background noise. It's not crazy. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. One of those scriptural reminders is that life is fleeting. Remember, O man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So make sure to notice the life that's in your body. All right, number three, noticing. Brian says, savoring is the capacity to notice, attend to, and appreciate positive experience. To paying attention to what is in front of you and how it makes you feel. We all know this, right? This is why we put up the inspirational signs to be president and we watch Dead Poets Society, right? Carve DM. And annoyingly tell each other to cherish every moment while you're there with your screaming toddler. But again, what if this isn't just a sentiment? 
or a, play, a way to feel bad. I'm like, ah, oh, come on, be present, be present, be present. But actually a skill you can learn. One of the practices Bryant recommends is called active memory building. So he shares a story of sitting on top of a mountain peak and getting out his journal. And this is what he writes. I'll read the whole thing to you. Uh, yeah, keep going down. Again, he's on top of a mountain and he writes, I have a strong sense of the fleetingness of the moment and I have made special efforts to capture it. I want to remember this moment for the rest of my life so I build the memory of it actively and deliberately. I slowly turn in a circle and let my eyes seek out what they find attractive. I notice tiny details in the overwhelming expanse beneath me. A wrinkled quilt with emerald and olive patches is a forest of aspen and spruce. A thin silver ribbon zigzagging through the shadows is a river. A handful of silver coins strewn randomly on the floor is a group of lakes near our camp. All of these things and more I notice as I make a mental movie of what surrounds me. So I know we're all not going to be articulate like that, but can you see what he's doing? Can you kind of wrap your head around that idea of active memory building? At some level, it's not just about saying, fall days are really nice. But actively experiencing them and noticing what they do in me. I love the way the sun gets warm in the afternoon and brings a sense of life to all the colors. I love the way the leaf falls slowly, taking its time as it winds its way to the ground. I love the taste of a fresh apple or the feel of the pumpkin seeds or the smell of the turkey baking in the oven. How's that feel? If it feels too gushy, it's probably because we weren't taught to do it and we can dismiss it as gushy, except for the fact that this stuff is associated with pretty much every positive health outcome. If you're depressed or anxious and unhappy, it might be worth a try. So let's try it real quick. What do you like about today? about the space? What do you notice? <clears throat> what do your eyes take in? <clears throat> what do you like about the people who are here? Can you actively build the memory of being here? Can you notice what's around you and what's going on inside you? <clears throat> now there's a tricky balance here. The research shows that if you overdo it, you actually lose it. You become stuck in yourself and you start going, am I still happy? Am I okay? Am I still happy? And you, you lose presence. 
And of course, this is not about fixing or solving or controlling or correcting. It's actually just about observation and awe and wonder. Or in Richard Rohr's phraseology, the non-judgmental gaze of God. <coughs> so if you can, try that this week. Maybe it's at night when your head hits the pillow saying, what did I like about today? What did I notice? What did I feel? should also say, this is a little bit of a aside. I'm 99% sure you don't need really nice stuff to be able to savor. Like, I know these ideas are often associated with being on a mountaintop or, like, wine tasting or high-level coffee snobbery, right? I'm pretty sure you can savor Cool Ranch Doritos. Right? <coughs> Anyone want to disagree with me on that? Like, have you ever re- eaten a Cool Ranch Dorito slowly? I'm pretty sure that flavor palette is as complicated as any fine wine. <laughs> it's kind of an aside, but don't let being a regular person stop you from savoring or not having really nice stuff. Savoring might actually make you like things that are higher quality, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure you can savor, like, Cool Ranch Doritos. Like this, don't, you know, don't write this off because it's like, well, I'm not like a fine wine person or whatever. All right, last one. Slowing down. Speed and impatience is really the enemy of enjoyment, Fred Bryant says. We know this one, right? Again, we know this one and try not to just bank this in our sentiments, but think about what it means to practice it. The faster you're going, the less likely you are to notice and enjoy the good things in your life. We know that. But the reality is, no amount of guilt will actually make you slow down and be present. In fact, it's going to do the opposite. The more you just kind of like punish yourself for being unable to slow down, the less likely you are to actually be present. Again, we'll go back to our theme, practices. You have to actually schedule a Sabbath day. And if you can't schedule a Sabbath day, schedule a Sabbath evening, right? Where you turn off your phone and go to bed early. Come to a silent retreat day or go to yoga or stay for the Quaker service or walk the labyrinth. Have intentional times when your phone is either off or in the other room. Practices, right? These are skills we can learn. It's not something we're born with practices that we can take on. And again, like all new skills, joy and vision are good motivators, not guilt and shame. So imagine, imagine actually being able to enjoy your life. Wouldn't it be worth it to schedule some time off if that were the end result? I've realized at some point that Pretty much all my most transformative experiences have come when I was unhurried. And of course, in case we think this is overly indulgent or somehow dishonoring to God, it's important to remember that Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. So apparently slowing down is somehow on the same level as not murdering someone. It's a big deal. So I encourage you to think about 
maybe one rhythm you could put in your life for this. Again, if this is a skill you learn, don't try and run a marathon, right? Try and run a half mile this week. What would it look like to take one small thing on where you can slow down? Okay. So again, if you're here this morning and you keep thinking, man, I stink at this, and I, again, I'd say, of course you do. You've never been taught it and you've never practiced it. You also stink at playing the violin. Why would you expect otherwise? Again, the key is not to beat yourself up over it. But begin the process of putting small habits and practices in your life. Five minutes here, an hour there. A meal where your phone is in the other room. A day off when you can. Take the social media off your phone. They say as little as 75 seconds of deep breathing will reset your central nervous system. Like 75 seconds, right? Nobody's too busy for that. And again, this may seem like stuff of privilege or gushy stuff or stuff for progressive people who like poetry or whatever. But Ecclesiastes says it's better to be a stillborn child than to have good stuff and not be able to enjoy it. So there's something pretty big at stake here. Whether or not you'll actually enjoy your life or let it whiz past you while you complain about all the things that could have been. And again, less on the negative, but on the positive. In my experience, savoring isn't just good practice. At its best, savoring's worship. Have <coughs> you guys experienced that? Savoring at its best connects us to God and connects us to creation and connects us to our bodies and connects us to the depths of our soul. Savoring is what draws all of those things together. So I'm going to close with the same story I did last month. This was your homework from a month ago, so I'm sure everybody has been out practicing it all month long. And this is a story from Kurt Vonnegut. You can go to the next one. Kurt Vonnegut says, But I had a good uncle, my late uncle Alex. He was my father's kid brother, a childless graduate of Harvard who was an honest life insurance salesman in Indianapolis. He was well-read and wise, and his principal complaint about other human beings was that they so seldom noticed it when they were happy. So when we were drinking lemonade under an apple tree in the summer, say, and talking lazily about this and that, almost buzzing like honeybees, Uncle Alex would suddenly interrupt the agreeable blather to exclaim, This isn't nice. I don't know what is. So I do the same now, and so my kids and my grandkids, and I urge you to please notice when you're happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Go out this week and savor. Amen. Lord, we pray you would teach us that you would drive away the shame and the guilt that we can't enjoy these things.
but help us to learn and enjoy. And know that this is not against you, but you created us because you thought we'd enjoy it. In Jesus' name we pray. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.